Hi, this is Kim, and welcome back to Weber County's Greatest Generation. This story was um, given to me by David Thomas, a member of the Elam Lutheran Church, which is on 23rd and Jefferson, and it's about a longtime family that were members of that church. Glenn Arthur Sandlin was born on May 10, 1923, in Ogden to Axel F. and Doris Swanson Sandlin. The family belonged to the Elam Lutheran Church at 23rd and Jefferson, where he was confirmed on May 22, 1938. In the 1930 census, the family was living at 2805 Jefferson with Dora's mother, Minnie, all of them having been born in Sweden. There was also another daughter of Minnie's, Elma, who was living with her husband, Leland, and their daughter, Doris, who was just eight months old. Axel was working for the steam railroad as a car inspector, and Leland was a truck driver for oil distribution. In the 1940 census, the family had moved a few blocks away and were living at 2267 Jefferson, and this time Grandma Minnie was living with them. Wallace was 19 and a laborer building construction. Axel was still employed as a car inspector, and Glenn was a student. On March 31, 1934, at the age of nine, he and his brother Wallace performed an instrumental duet at the Elam Lutheran Church's Easter program. It was reported in the Standard Examiner. Another report on May 7, 1938, Glenn, now 15, performed at the Mother's Day program. He played a coronet solo called An Old Refrain. Glenn is an amazing all-around kid. He was musically talented, but he was an exceptional athlete. The first newspaper clipping I found about his sports was from the January 17, 1934 paper when he was nine years old. It said in the Interpark Tennis Tournament at the Lester Park, battling against South Washington, it was reported that Glenn defeated Junior Gate in a fine baseline drive, 6-1-2-6-8-6. The final victory, 12-2, went to Lester. On January 9, 1939, there's a picture of him holding a basketball with the caption, Classy Quarter. Glenn Sandland, center and forward of the Central Junior High Cage Team, Champions of the City League, is expected to spark the new team to the 1939 championship. Sandland will see service Wednesday evening in the Central Gymnasium against the Box Elder High School Reserves. And then on February 19, 1939, a headline on the sports page again reported Central Cage champs stand undefeated in last 17 games. Captain Glenn Sandlin rates as a colorful performer to the team. Strong reserve strength aided Cubs in pulling through to the tourney and league titles. When the basket tossers wearing Central's royal blue and gold walked off the floor last Thursday afternoon, at the conclusion of their game with Mount Fort, the Hilltop Juniors entered their league schedule with a perfect record. The 1939 Central Cage team finished its relations with other members in the Ogden City League, winning six games and losing none. Besides their league opponents, the Cubs topped Davis High sophomores twice, Box Elder Junior twice, West Weaver twice, North Ogden, and other smaller schools. And then a smaller headline that said, Glenn Stands Out. Captain Glenn Sandland stands out as the league's most valuable performer by long odds. He was consistently the high scorer and a good boy under the hoops. Then again on December 4th, 1940, the headline says, Glenn Sandlin sparkles for the Methodist Five. Baptist Cagers trimmed St. Paul Lutheran 38-28 to in the league encounter. Of those 28 points for the Lutherans, Glenn Sandlin scored 20. 
Not only is he playing church basketball, but he is also a star at Ogden High School. In 1940, the article read, Ogden's High Classy Orange Streaks annexed their second Utah Scholastic Basketball Championship at Utah University Fieldhouse. Their first state title was in 1932. More than 5,500 spectators watched the Tigers crush the Dixie High Flyers by a score of 41 to 26. It was an attack that could not be denied. There was a picture in the newspaper on March 17th with the caption, The Greatest Team in History. That's what the Railbirds are saying today at the Ogden High Hoopsters 1940 Utah Scholastic Champs. A mammoth celebration is planned for Monday for the new champions. Meet the new Utah Kings of Court. And then second from the left in the picture is a smiling Glenn Samlin. So he returned for what would be his senior year. And on November 24th, 1940, the headlines read, Ogden Tigers start rebuilding for the new basketball campaign. Glenn Sandlin, the only regular, reporting for play in Region 1. Sandlin, center of the 1940 State Scholastic Champions, is the only regular back for the new season. Sandlin will cavort at either center or forward during the 1941 campaign. On December 29, 1940, the Standard reported about a game between the state champion Ogden Tigers and the Weber Warriors. Glenn Sandlin, the only squad member of 1940 back in Togs at Ogden High School, may watch the Friday contest from the sidelines. He is nursing a bad knee and also getting over a serious bout of the flu. Not sure who won that game, but since I'm a proud alumni of Weber High School, I kind of hope it was the Warriors. He's mentioned again on March 20th, 1941, back in the state championship game. Eight first-round court battles Wednesday reduced the number of Utah State high school basketball contenders squarely in half today, but the Ogden Tigers are still very much in the thick of the hostilities. Ogden eked out a sensational 30-29 decision over the touted Grandchens of Granite High in a four-period thrill-packed game last night. At one juncture in the game, the Tigers held a three-point lead. In the final period, Granite moved ahead three points of Ogden 28-25, to but elongated Glenn Sandlin then took command of the situation. He single-handedly dropped two buckets and a free throw that brought victory to the Tigers. And in the waning minutes of the game, Sandlin was ejected on personal fouls. His brilliant all-around play caused all of the newspaper critics to stamp him as the man of the hour. Ogden lost the next game, and the final was between Provo and Davis, but the paper reported that Walter Puse at the Bulldogs defeated the Darts single-handedly. His performance as the standout of the tournament with Glenn Sandlin of Ogden, a close runner-up. So now we move on to baseball season. On April 13, 1941, the paper reported on the upcoming baseball season, Glenn Sandland, All-State Center in the basketball season, handles the initial sack with the pose of a veteran and can be relied on for his share of bingles. I had no idea what a bingle is, but apparently it is a single, getting the batter on first base. Glenn graduated from Ogden High School in 1941. On September 7th of 1941, the Standard Examiner said two Eastern colleges are bidding for the services of Glenn Sandland, the All-State basketball player at Ogden High. George Washington may land the ace. And again on September 17, 1941, Glenn Sandland, former Ogden basketball star, has departed for Washington, D.C., where he will enroll in George Washington University. 
I was unable to find out any information on him playing for George Washington University. His draft card lists the Jefferson Avenue um, address as his home, but at the time he was living at 1609 K Street, Northwest Washington, D.C., and was working at the Glen Echo Amusement Park in Glen Echo, Maryland. On December 7th, all hopes and dreams for a basketball future for Glenn and thousands of other athletes all over the United States were crushed, and now their lives would take on a very different track. On November 20th, 1942, there was an article about Glenn's brother Wallace. Corporal Wallace Sandland, son of Mr. and Mrs. Axel Sandland of 2267 Jefferson, left Ogden Wednesday after a five-day furlough spent in Ogden with family and friends. He entered the U.S. Army on July 13th and is assigned to a tank destroyer unit. The Ogdenite is a graduate of Ogden High School, where he was prominent in athletics, being an outstanding basketball player. A brother, Glenn, is a student at George Washington University in Washington, D.C. So as we've talked about before, on the day that Pearl Harbor was bombed, there were simultaneous Japanese attacks at several other locations, and one of those occurred in the Philippine Islands. So just a little history of why we were in the Philippines. Before the Spanish-American War, and yep, that's the one where Teddy Roosevelt rode up San Juan Hill in 1898, the Philippine Islands were a colony of Spain. After the war, the Filipinos wanted independence, so to that end, they were temporarily ceded to the United States, who took over all of the military stations left by the Spaniards. One of these was the Cavite Naval Yard on the Linguayan Bay, 22 miles southwest of Manila. Another was the Clark Airfield, also on the island of Luzon, about 56 miles northwest of Manila. Before the war, General Douglas MacArthur lived with his family in Manila, where he served as the chief U.S. military advisor to the Philippines. On July 26, 1941, President Roosevelt recalled him to active duty and named him commander of the U.S. Army Forces in the Far East. Later in the year, when the relationship between the United States and Japan was failing, he was given the order to build up the Philippines in case of a Japanese attack. On August 14th of 1941, Brigadier General Leonard T. Gurrow, the chief of the War Plans Division, argued the Philippine Department could not resist a Japanese attack. He recommended that the Philippines be reinforced with anti-aircraft artillery, modern aircraft, and tanks. On August 16th, MacArthur was informed that by September 5th, he could expect the 200th Coast Artillery Regiment, the 192nd and the 194th Tank Battalions, and also a company of the 17th Ordnance Battalion. MacArthur was asked if he wanted an additional National Guard division from the United States, but he declined, stating if he had equipment and supplies, the forces available would be adequate in a Japanese conflict. He ordered the mobilization of the Philippine Army beginning on September 1st, 1941. Ten Filipino Reserve Divisions were to be called into service for the United States Army by December 15th of 1941. Training and coordination was not going very well, and it was further complicated by language barriers. Enlisted Filipinos often spoke one language, their officers would speak another language, and the Americans would speak English. There were some first sergeants and company clerks that could neither read nor write. At the outbreak of the war, the United States Navy's Asiatic Fleet was stationed at the Cavite Naval Base in Manila Bay. Also stationed there was the offshore patrol of Clark Airfield. 
The fleet was used to patrol the islands around the Philippines, but after several weeks of fierce attack, the fleet had been totally destroyed by February of 1942. I think the reason that MacArthur hadn't been very worried was that the plan, if Japan attacked, would be to move all troops, equipment, and supplies to the Bataan Peninsula. They were sure they could hold off long enough until they could get additional support from the Army and Navy in Hawaii. But unfortunately, when that time came, there was no support to send. Fearing that MacArthur would be captured by the Japanese, President Roosevelt ordered him to leave. At first, he refused, but on March 21st of 1942, he left with his family and a few aides and nurses for Australia. When he got there, he gave a speech and told the people of the Philippines, I shall return. The American and Philippine forces would hold out as long as they could, but on April 9th, Bataan surrendered, and the tiny island of Corregidor surrendered one month later on May 6th. This would be the beginning of what came to be known as the Bataan Death March. 75,000 Filipino and American troops were forced to make an arduous 65-mile march to prison camps. All prisoners were separated into groups of about 100, and each trip took five days to complete. They marched in intense heat and were treated very harshly by the guards. I've talked about the treatment of the Japanese to these soldiers in previous podcasts. The number of casualties is not known, but it's estimated that thousands were starved or beat to death. The Japanese bayoneted those too weak to walk. There is also a report that a Japanese guard ran over a bunch of prisoners standing in the road. When they finally got to San Fernando, they were loaded on trains and sent to various Japanese prison camps all over the islands of the Philippines. Thousands of the prisoners would die before the end of the world, but for those who survived, they would remain there until 1945 during the Battle of Manila. So Glenn enlisted in the Army on February 8th of 1943 and was assigned to the 37th Infantry Division, the 145th Infantry, in Company K. MacArthur's American strategic plan that was going to take place from Australia was to move up the Solomon Island chains in the South Pacific and open a direct route to the Philippines and then make a move on Tokyo. In 1942, the U.S. Marines drove the Japanese out of the first Solomon Island, Guadalcanal. Painfully and bloodily, the 37th Infantry Division pushed through the jungles of New Georgia. The next and final Solomon Island was Bougainville, and at some point during this period, Glenn arrived in the Pacific and joined with Company K. This battle was fought to regain control of the island from Japanese forces who had invaded in March of 1942. Once they had secured the island from the Australians, they began to build airfields that allowed them to attack the Allied lines of communication between Australia, the United States, and the Southwest Pacific area. In early November, the 3rd Marine Division and the 37th Infantry Division invaded the island. This history is taken from HistoryNet.com, the 37th Infantry Division's Battle for Hill 700. By November 13th, the Marine and Army units had reached their two-mile-deep objective against relatively moderate enemy ground resistance and airstrikes. The fighting had been limited, and it was obvious that the Japanese had assumed that the American troops would go after them in the jungle terrain, where they could inflict heavy casualties as they hacked their way yard by yard through the jungles. But they soon realized if they wanted to kill their enemy, and most important, take out the vital airfield, the Japanese would have to attack head-on. 
The battle for Hill 700 was the bloodiest in which the 37th Infantry Division had yet participated, exceeding in carnage every single action of the New Georgia campaign. When the battle had ended, there were 1,500 Japanese buried in graves and foxholes on the side of the hill. They were placed one on top of each other in all types of grotesque positions, some completely unmarked except for clean bullet rooms in their chest or heads. There were others without legs or arms. The captured prisoners claimed that the four days of fighting had resulted in the virtual annihilation of the 2nd and 3rd Battalions of the Japanese 23rd Infantry. Sergeant Sandlin's battalion would remain in Bougainville until December of 1944, when it prepared for the invasion of Luzon and the Battle of Manila. The assault on the island of Luzon commenced on January 9, 1945, and in the first few days, over 175,000 troops landed on the 20-mile beachhead. Despite strong opposition, by January 31st, the 145th and the 148th Infantry Regiments had taken Clark Field. By February 4th, the 37th Infantry had encircled and began to enter Manila from the north, and the battle for Manila had begun. This month-long battle would result in the death of over 100,000 civilians, and would end in complete devastation of the city. It was the scene of the worst urban fighting in the Pacific Theater. And along with Berlin and Warsaw, Manila would become one of the most devastated cities in World War II. This battle ended the almost three years of Japanese military occupation, and General Douglas MacArthur considered it the key victory in the campaign of reconquest. The fighting was hand-to-hand. It was brutal and bloody, and I found this information online from Combat Studies Institute from Fort Leavenworth, Kansas, for the Battle of Manila. The main purpose of the enemy in defending Manila was threefold, to effect maximum attrition of U.S. forces, to delay the occupation and use of the Port of Manila as long as possible, and to cripple the city as a base for future military operations. The Japanese also wanted to stop it as a center for civilian production and government control, and so there was no effort to evacuate the civilian population before the battle. Enemy strong points with heavy anti-armor weapons were established behind barricades, in buildings by uncoordinated groups, and instructions for the enemy were to fight to the death. The report continued. The 37th fought their way into Manila. The enemy had been compressed into an area small enough to require the attention of only part of the Corps, The 37th was assigned the mission of clearing the rest of the city. On February 16th, they reached the eastern edge of the Intramuros. This was an historic walled area within Manila. At the time it was built by the Spanish, it encompassed the entire city. It would be completely destroyed in this battle. From the 16th until February 22nd, they continued to close in on the enemy, and the fighting was house to house and street to street. Some structures, like large buildings, were individual fortresses, and it sometimes required more than a day of continuous fighting to overcome it. In the case of the Manila Hotel, the battle inside the building raged for three days, starting from the mezzanine floor clear to the top floor. By the 22nd of February, the Japanese had been forced into a small area, including intramurals, and there was a small area to the south where modern fireproof government buildings were located. Glenn was killed on February 22nd, the day before the final assault on the Intramuros was made. 
the outcome of the battle resulted in the destruction of Japanese defenses and the final elimination of Japanese resistance in Manila. The cost of retaking the city had not been light. During this month of fighting, over 1,000 men were killed and 5,500 wounded. The Japanese lost some 16,000 men killed or wounded in and around Manila. On the part of civilians, millions of dollars of damage had been suffered, and there had been approximately 100,000 civilians killed. And although the fighting in the Philippines was still going on, the strategic issue had been decided, and the seizure of Manila assured the United States of a base area capable of launching the still-scheduled invasion of Japan. On March 19, 1945, in the Sport Highway with Al Warden column, the article read, Sergeant Glenn Sandlin dies in Manila. Notice at the death of Sergeant Glenn Sandlin, 21, former stellar athlete, was received Sunday morning by his parents, Mr. and Mrs. Axel Sandlin of 2267 Jefferson. Sergeant Sandlin was killed in action on February 22nd in Manila, according to the Telegraph report received from the Office of the Secretary of War. Before induction into the Army at Fort Douglas on February 13, 1943, he had been enrolled for one and a half years at George Washington University. There, he was approaching national prominence for his prowess as a basketball player. Previously, he had been outstanding at a cage sport at Central Lower Division High School and at Ogden High School, graduating from the latter in 1941. At Ogden High School, he played in two state basketball tournaments, being a member of the championship team of 1940. Both years, he was selected as the All-State Honor Roll. In his senior year, he was cadet colonel of the local ROTC unit. He was also outstanding as a player representing Elam Lutheran Church, of which he was a member. Sergeant Sandlin received his army training at Camp Walters and Fort Ord. In May of 1944, he was shipped from a West Coast port into the Pacific Theater of War, where he had seen considerable action prior to his death. In a letter written February 14th, he told his parents of having been wounded and receiving the Purple Heart, but it was not learned whether he succumbed from these wounds or whether he was killed in a subsequent battle. The telegram stated that complete details would be forthcoming in a letter to follow. I didn't find any other information on the details, and so I'm not sure exactly what happened. Besides his parents, he is survived by an older brother, Lieutenant Wallace A. Sandlin, stationed with the American Armed Forces somewhere in France. In another article, the newspaper says, Memorial services for Sergeant Glenn Sandlin son of Mr. and Mrs. Axel Sandlin will be held at 8 p.m. on Friday, April 27th in the Elam Lutheran Church on 23rd and Jefferson. The family requests no flowers. Pastor Floyd Lewis will be in charge and friends are invited. It's been really interesting as I've um, researched a lot of these. There were never any flowers at the um, funerals of any of the servicemen. His headstone application indicates that his body was returned to the United States and the application was signed by his father, Axel, on June 29th of 1948. His brother, Wallace, survived the war and died on January 24th of 2000. So this story was brought to my attention by David Thomas, who gave me some information on the family's relationship to the Elam Lutheran Church, still located at 23rd and Jefferson. So there is a memorial plaque um, 
in the Elam Church, and an article was written by David about Glenn in a column called Out of the Dustbin. Did you know that the office Sunday school wing of Elam has a name? It was designated as Glen Hall when the addition was built onto the back of the church in 1963. I had never encountered that designation until I began reading Elam's 75th anniversary booklet as a part of getting ready for the 125th anniversary celebration. There was a page of photos titled Educational Building Glen Hall. The new wing was named for Glen Hall, the old parsonage which had been remodeled in 1958 into six Sunday school classrooms. But who was Glenn, and why did Elam name a building and later an addition after him? Glenn was Glenn Sandlin, the only son of Elam to lose his life during World War II. He was the son of Mr. and Mrs. Axel Sandlin of Elam and the younger brother of Wallace Sandlin, who was at the time serving as a lieutenant somewhere in France or Germany. Glenn had attended Madison Central and graduated in 1941 from Ogden High School. He then attended George Washington University. Glenn was a sergeant in the 37th Infantry and died fighting in the Philippines on February 22, 1945. He was awarded the Purple Heart. On March 21, 1945, the Desert News published an article, Basketball Star Killed in Battle. Reporter Les Goat said that Glenn had been his favorite player in the state tournament of 1941. He had been an all-state center for the Ogden High School Tigers in two state tournaments in 1940 and 41, and was rapidly approaching national prominence at George Washington University for his prowess as a basketball player. As part of Elam's 125th anniversary celebration for the next year and a half, the Sunday School slash Office Wing will be rededicated at the Glen Hall Memorial Wing, and a plaque will be hung so that this brave son of Elam will not be swept into the dustbin of history again. So many thanks to David for alerting me about this story. Another one of Weber County's most promising boys killed in World War II. So thanks again for joining. Remember, you can like the Facebook page, Weber County's Greatest Generation, or the podcast is also available on iTunes.